Welcome, everyone, to BAMS Radio. We took a week off last week, but uh, it is May the 9th, 2018, and the University of Alabama now with the spring practice in the rearview mirror uh, as uh, they are within the interim, finishing up school and classes. uh, And then once that happens, uh, they will have, you know, what Nick Saban called about about a three, four-week break, about a month off before uh, they really get back into the strength and conditioning program under Scott Cochran. Uh, And then, of course, before you know it, fall practice will be here in early August, and Alabama will be preparing for their season opener on September the 1st against the Louisville Cardinals in Orlando, Florida. But uh, I'm your host, Rudy Armin, with uh, the wizard Thomas Watts behind the curtain, my co-host also, uh, the producing BAMS Radio, uh, does an outstanding job. And then our third amigo, as always, William Redfish Barger, from 1989 to 93, a big-time uh, contributor to the University of Alabama, a national champion, and a guy that's still very close to the Crimson Tide football program. Well, William, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, Unfortunately, during this time of year, if there's some news, a lot of times it can be a negative. Uh, Mark Ingram, the the first Heisman Trophy winner in the history of the University of Alabama, also a a guy that, uh, you know, was a 2009 national champion, helped lead the Crimson Tide to a 14-0 record, uh, had an unbelievable sophomore year, uh, went pro after his junior season, has had a very, very uh, good run with the New Orleans Saints, nearly a decade now in the NFL, which is a long time for a running back. But some unfortunate news comes out about Mark this week. Been suspended by the National Football League, but he is appealing four games for using a performance-enhancing drug. Yeah, you know, Drew, that's, you know, kind of a, you know, kind of a, a dark room topic that I think a lot of, you know, casual fans don't really understand. Um, you know, and again, you know, I, I don't even know if a lot of people realize this or not. I'm sure you do and Thomas does, but people don't realize that, you know, NFL football players, they get paid on a weekly basis during the spring. I mean, uh, during the season, excuse me. Uh, I know we were talking about spring practice off the air before we came on a minute ago. But, you know, if you look at, you know, his contract, he's scheduled to make $4 million this year from the Saints. And if he misses four games, if you do the math, you know, no, no wonder he's hired a lawyer, he's lawyered up and is fighting this thing. He stands to lose. If the appeal doesn't work out in his favor, he stands to lose a million dollars. Uh, he basically makes $250,000 a game. Um, you know, if, if it, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is the NFL schedule minus the playoffs now still 16 game regular season? Yes, it is. It's 16 games. Couple of buys. Yeah, so he, you know, he's, he's scheduled to make four million dollars this year um, as the Saints starting running back, and you know if he if he misses the first four games, you know that's 250 grand times four. Um, you can certainly understand why he's lawyered up, but you know that's a you know kind of a deep dark secret. You know you 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 kind of want to sit there and have a conversation with somebody. Um, you know, do you really think that somebody that's 300 pounds um, is supposed to run? I'm not talking about Mark Ingram, but let's just talk about your average, you know, NFL offensive or defensive lineman. You know, do you really think that it's natural for a 300-pound man, you know, to run fast, jump high, and lift a lot of weight? Um, no, it's not. And, uh, you know, we, we've seen, you know, with Lance Armstrong, uh, you know, with the um, – you know, the scandal with Major League Baseball 10 or 15 years ago with Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, and all those guys. You know, Jose Canseco, I thought, um, you know, took a huge dump on on uh, a lot of his contemporaries and, and, and teammates with what he said about that stuff. You know, look, you don't get that way, and you don't get, you know, to, to be the top at anything without some help. It's just not natural. Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, steroids have been around for a long time. You know, a lot of people don't know this. Um, the, the guy that actually invented anabolic steroids was Adolf Hitler. Um, his, his head scientist that worked for the Nazi regime in World War II Germany was a guy by the name of John Ziegler. And Adolf Hitler wanted some kind of compound that his soldiers could take to keep them aggressive 
Um, and, and, you know, when they didn't have, you know, food, if they were stuck out, you know, in trench warfare somewhere. And that's where anabolic steroids first uh, were invented, was by Nazi Germany. Um, of course, you know, they've always been at the forefront of uh, Olympic sports and, and performance enhancement. But the Russians, you know, kind of took that and ran with it in the 60s and 70s with Olympic sports. But, you know, everybody's always looking for an edge. You know, once you get to that level, it's not so much, you know, in Mark Ingram's standpoint, um, and I'm not going to throw stones. I don't know what substance he was, you know, suspended for, um, what he did take or didn't take. But once you get to that level, it, it's not about, you know, becoming better. It's about surviving and being able to maintain that level of performance. Um, you know, a, a guy that I think probably brought the first attention to it uh, back in the late 80s. Um, was Brian Bosworth when he was at Oklahoma. Um, you know, when, when you get injured, um, you know, there's, there's corticoid steroids and there's anabolic steroids, both. Um, you know, I'm sure everybody that's listening to this podcast, you know, has somebody that's got a bad back and they go get cortisone injections, um, you know, for their bad back. You know, if you get pneumonia, um, people get put on a drug that's called prednisone. That, that is a steroid. It's not an anabolic steroid. It's a corticosteroid. But this is something that's been a part of big-time sports at every level um, for a long time, you know, going all the way back to the 70s. Um, you know, at the NFL, at the NFL level, Drew, you know, I think this is kind of an interesting, buy, uh, you know, kind of buy point. You know, anabolic steroids – were not outlawed by the NFL until the late 80s. Um, you know, you, you, could, you could still to this day go to a pharmacy in Mexico and buy a gym bag full of the stuff. Um, you've got to hope you don't get caught coming back into the country with them. But, you know, that's what a lot of people do. Um, you, know, it, you know, whether it's anabolic steroids, growth hormone, you know, there's a lot of people out there that push the envelope. Um, you know, with, with insulin, you know, that's a very dynamic drug in itself. Um, but it's also a drug that can kill you deader than a doornail if you don't know what you're doing. But there, there's all kinds of stuff that, um, you know, one of my favorite, you know, NFL stories that, that someone that played with him on the NFL level told me um, was about the, uh, the former great NFL linebacker, Bill Romanowski. Um, he won a Super Bowl with the, the San Francisco 49ers, finished his career at Denver. Um, you know, a, a former teammate of mine at Alabama played with him for a couple of years in Denver and said that the guy had a fishing tackle box um, that, that he toted around to practice every day with him, you know, filled with all the different supplements and, you know, non-legal supplements that uh, that he was taking. So, you know, it, this is something that's not new. It's, it's, it's kind of one of those things that I think a lot of people take the attitude of, well, I really don't want to know about that, so don't tell me. Um, but, but it's been a deep, dark secret in, you know, especially um, sports that involve power and strength for a long, long time. It has, and one of the other great examples I can remember uh, during my youth and, of course, uh, of following the NFL and the draft process, uh, he ended up being a bust from the standpoint he wasn't a dominant football player. He actually, in his defense, came back and had a few good years uh, starting as a guard for the Indianapolis Colts, but the, is Tony Mandarich. I mean, they called him the incredible oh, bulk. Yeah, but he was, oh, in, sure. he was on a bunch of steroids. And uh, once he kind of w- was figured out and – uh, got off of those steroids. Uh, he was uh, a, with the Packers. He was uh, he was exposed quickly. Yes, he was. And and you know the the thing about that was, and that's what people don't understand about when when you start getting into being a fully functioning athlete that's taking performance enhancing drugs. You know, most people don't get caught at the NFL, Major League Baseball level, Olympic level, taking the actual drug that they're using to um, be better. Um, there's a whole list of those drugs. What they get caught with 
is taking an estrogen blocker um, or, or other drugs that kind of mask what they're taking um, on the down low. And, you know, at the NCAA level, I think this is probably the biggest fraud that I've ever seen, you know, for an entity that wants to, you know, promote clean play, safe play. And these are the same bozos that are contemplating eliminating kickoffs. Um, you know, when I was in school at Alabama, um, we knew that there were two time periods that the NCAA was going to test us. And you got a week's notice beforehand um, before they would come in and test. Now, the university did test um, periodically, randomly, I should say, um, throughout the year. But, you know, because I, I, I could put a price tag on this for the early to mid-90s. I can't do it now, but I'm sure it's more expensive. But to test a, a student athlete for street drugs in, from 1990 to 1993 cost $10 a pop per player. So, you know, you can afford to do that. To expand that drug screen into a performance-enhancing drug screen, it costs $500 per player. So, you know, what the NCAA would do is they would look at last year's roster versus this year's lost roster, and they would red flag, you know, three or four, maybe five players that had gained 25 or 30 pounds from one year's to the other. And, you know, they would, they, they would spend the money, you know, testing those guys for PEDs. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's something – it's kind of like uh, – you know, do you want to know or do you really want to know? And, you know, especially when it comes to big people, offensive linemen, defensive linemen, maybe expand it out a little bit to inside and outside linebackers, you know, front seven personnel um, in college football. Uh, you really don't want to know what your favorite football player, both in college and the NFL, um, is doing with their time. Um, to get that big, to get that big, fast and strong, because it's just not natural. Um, you know, you you can't you know drink whey protein powder and creatine and, and improve your athletic performance. You you've got to get into um, you know those banned substances, and it, it's it's a rampant thing. Um, I would be willing to bet, um, you know, when you look at Tiger Woods when he was a college golfer at Stanford and you look at his physique and then you look at when he went on that run in the late nineties where he was winning all the majors, 100% was on something. I can guarantee you that. Oh yeah. There is no question because uh, I, uh, at that point in time, I was a Tiger Woods guy, but I, you know, once I found out he was, uh, he was, uh, you know, associated with Anthony Galea, I think was the guy's name who was a, big-time steroid doctor, there is no doubt in my mind that led to some of his back problems and why his body well, starts and the breaking way that down. It, and the way that his body is breaking down now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Still after you know, I'm not gonna name. Yeah, I'm not going to name any names, but I've got two really good friends of mine, um, and I think if memory serves me right, both of them were second-round draft picks in the NFL. And they started dabbling in the veterinary steroids, um, the same substance that Ben Johnson uh, was on when he won the gold medal, you know, in the 100-meter sprints. I think that was in 88 or 89. Um, Stanazol, which is commonly known as Winstrol V, um, is, is, a, is a steroid that you can take um, – and it, you know, you'll get you'll get big and strong, but you don't put on water weight. You don't get puffy and bulky like the, you know, the Decadura Ballins or the Diana Balls do to you. Um, but but a lot of guys went down that route, and the guys that I know that did that that were playing in the NFL uh, blew their Achilles tendons out, blew their shoulders out, had severe knee injuries. You know, you know, me personally, um, I don't know how anybody can think that a, a drug that they give to thoroughbred racehorses would translate to a positive outcome for a human being, um, you know, playing a contact sport. Because, you know, there's no dirtier sport um, in the whole world than, than thoroughbred racehorses. I mean, they give those animals steroids. 
Um, you know, they do the blood doping just like they like Lance Armstrong did and the, um, you know, the, the biking stuff. They give them snake venom to make them run faster and make them pissed off and aggressive. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I think, you know, the common fan looks out there and says, you know, um, you know, this guy's my favorite player. Um, you know, what he does in the offseason to get to this point, I really don't care as long as he gets 15 sacks. And, and what that guy does to get those 15 sacks, I think, would scare a lot of people. So true, uh, no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, uh, we hope Mark Ingram can uh, get past this and hopefully win his appeal. We'll see. But uh, usually uh, that's a tough road. And like you said, he makes $4 million a year. And I hate to sound trivial when I say this, but when you think about running back salaries, that's only kind of middle of the pack <laughs> uh, in the National Football League. And as you uh, just got through saying, a lot of times, especially unlike Major League Baseball and the NBA, one of the big things about NFL contracts, William, is a lot of them are not guaranteed. No, they're not. And, you know, when you look at, at you know, Mark's situation, and, again, I'm not passing judgment on the guy. You know, Drew, there's, there's a lot of substances you know, where people get – we talked about off the air earlier about what happened to Todd Bates, you know, at Alabama, God, oh, yeah. 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah, you know, he lost he, he one was season. Yep. A, yeah, he was taking a substance that, you know, a lot of people in America were taking, um, you know, to lose weight. You know, it was called ephedra. And the only reason why Major League Baseball and, and the NCAA, um, you know, banned it, was because so many people were, you know, what it did, you know, is it, is it jacked your metabolism and your heart rate so much, you know, you would lose weight on it uh, without exercising. Um, but if you had a, you know, congestive or, or a, a hereditary heart problem, uh, you know, people with murmurs and, and regular heartbeats and stuff, what, what really kind of led up to that was um, the, the great uh, – uh, offensive lineman from Ohio State that was playing for the Minnesota Vikings, Corey Stringer's death kind of brought attention to it. And then a couple of Major League Baseball players, um, you know, stroked out on it and died. And, you know, that led to everybody banning it. Um, but, you know, that was something that you could walk into GNC or Walgreens or whatever and buy over the counter. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff. You know, when, when Bates was doing it, 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 was, it was a legal supplement. And, you know, when they passed the law, or, or the regulation, I should say, from the NCAA, um, I guess he still had it in the system. And, you know, something that he went into, you know, the Tuscaloosa Mall right there in McFarland and bought it from, from GNC. And, you know, they, they made it an illegal substance, and you know, he got popped for it. So, um, you know, I, we're not talking right now about, you know, none of us have any knowledge um, with whatever the substance was that Mark Ingram got busted for. Um, he's lawyered up, you know, understandably so. Uh, but you, you have to kind of look at where he's at in his career. Um, he's closing in on, uh, you know, almost being down there for 10 years. And uh, if you pull up online, you know, what his pay scale's been, this was going to be the first year, you know, his salary this year, was going to be $4 million. He had a great year last year, um, deservedly so. But, you know, we'll see what happens with it. Um, you know, I hate to hear about it. You know, he's a high-character guy. You know, I've seen some sort of, you know, just ridiculous comments on the Internet. And this, this isn't coming from Alabama fans. You know, it's coming from, you know, rival fans that think Nick Saban is running a steroid in a uh, – human growth hormone factory down there in Tuscaloosa. But I saw one comment that somebody said, strip him, strip the Heisman from him. We knew he was doing this when he was at Alabama. And that's, that's ridiculous. It really is. I mean, they just people overreacting, but uh, let's not, that's why they call fans fanatics. A lot of times they overreact to things. And again, uh, hopefully Mark Ingram uh, will be back on the field soon and uh, get past it and, uh, He's always been a class act, never got in trouble at Bama, never have been in trouble in the pros uh, up to this point. So we'll see what happens. And, uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, these things uh, have a way of working themselves out. But uh, they, I'm sure the, now it's in, in the court's hands, and I know Mark and his lawyers are trying to get a handle on that. But now to switch gears, 
uh, William, I, I thought it was interesting. Uh, they, they always do this every year, it seems like, and it, it's one of those things during the slow cycle when it makes news. But it's more interesting this year due to the fact of all the turnover. Uh, but they released uh, the salaries uh, for the new Alabama coaching staff, which has had more turnover this year, both on the field and in the, uh, and in the uh, organization with the, uh, as far as off-the-field staff uh, you know, than Nick Saban's ever had. But they released the salaries for the on-field coaches. thought it was interesting. Uh, they bump up Mike Loxley, double his salary from 600K when he was co-OC and wide receivers coach to, to Brian Dable's salary of $1.2 million. Tosh Lupoy, yet again, for I believe the third, fourth year in a row, gets a raise, $1.1 million, just under the $1.3 paid uh, to Jeremy Pruitt as defensive coordinator. And then interestingly, and we've talked about Dan Enos quite a bit, his salary is two. Hundred thousand this year, I believe two fifty the next, and then is bumped all the way up in the third year to eight hundred and fifty thousand. And these contracts uh, are mostly two to three year deals, and that's become the norm for these assistant coaches. But I think what's uh, happening with Jeff Banks and Dan Enos is they've also, I think, are getting paid from other institutions still. <laughs> uh, in uh, when yes, they are, yeah, they are. They're getting so it's supplementing their money. But it looks to me like with the way Nick Saban. Uh, you know, layered these contracts that Dan Enos is going to be the uh, offensive coordinator in waiting, so to speak, when Mike Loxley, if he does his job very well, gets another chance to be a head coach. Yeah, and, you know, the Enos deal, you know, it's out there in the public domain. I want to say it was in oh, January or February of last year, Arkansas gave him a ton of money for, for Arkansas. Um, it, it's no different than the, you know, the Lane Kiffin deal, even though he was a head coach. Um, you know, the, those, those coordinator contracts, you know, are done on a two or a three year, you know, you know, type term. And, you know, Enos is still getting Arkansas money, a lot of Arkansas money. So, you know, what Saban does is he takes that, um, you know, you, you saw, you know, what little bit of money, I think Lane, the first, you know, two years he was at Alabama, he was making, you know, two or $300,000 a year. I, no, I take that back. It was probably around 600, but he was still getting, uh, I think the buyout on his contract at USC was like 3.5 million a year. So what he does is he gets these guys, you know, no different than what he's done with Butch Jones. Um, and he's paying Butch Jones an offensive analyst salary, which is 38 or 40 grand a year, but he's still getting that money from Tennessee. Did the same thing with Wayne Kiffin. Um, you know, he's doing the same thing with Dan Enos. Um, but, you know, it's uh, to me, I think the thing that really jumped out to me, and I think I saw a statistic on this, you know, Scott Cochran. You know, without his bowl bonus, if you factor in his bowl bonus, he's making closer to $700,000 a year versus, I think, uh, with his new raise, he's making five eighty six a year. But, you know, it's just crazy. And, you know, I think Nick Saban is the guy that kind of brought this to the forefront of college football. Um, you know, he wants to win and how he believes that he has to win is to spend money, whether it's on recruiting, whether it's on coaches' salaries. Um, so, you know, you've got a, a weightlifting coach that, you know, with his bowl bonus, you know, is making $700,000 a year at Alabama. I mean, that's just insane to me. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, he's uh, – Scott Cochran has continued to be taken care of by Nick Saban and has be, uh, become, uh, you know – Almost uh, the, the uh, second lieutenant, or the first, uh, you know, just, just the, the when you think of Nick Saban's program, it's almost the first person you think of is Scott Cochran. Uh, when uh, when you're thinking about guys that have worked under coach, uh, we know Burton Burns is still there in a new role, but Scott Cochran has been there the entire time and and stayed and uh, helped Coach Saban build up this program uh, and is uh, you know uh, and and really has become uh, so uh, a part of the fabric of it. And again, it's, I think he's bumped up now, as you said, uh, his salary five hundred eighty-five thousand. But that doesn't even count, you know, bowl bonuses and, as you said, other money uh, that can come in uh, for these guys. Uh, but speaking of this coaching staff, they've done an outstanding job, uh, you know, and 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 it looks like too, 
uh, Pete Golding, he's making six hundred and fifty thousand. Uh, Craig Kugliakowski, seven fifty. So we see what Coach Saban thinks of Coach Cool as defensive line coach. But I think uh, should Tosh Lupoy, even though I'm still, I think Tosh needs a couple of years as a DC before he gets a head coaching opportunity because it's really uh, when you ha- when you sit back and you think about it, William. Tosh is still such a young coach in his career, uh, and now, uh, but it, it, to me, he's on the same. And I, and of course, he's not one of my favorite people now, but I don't discount what he did for Alabama in his decade there, nearly. But it, it, it seems like much like Kirby Smart, uh, that uh, and and Jeremy Pruitt, but you know as well, Nick Saban is 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 going to groom and develop uh, Tosh Lupoy. Uh, as a defensive coordinator, which will lead to a head coaching opportunity. But it's still pretty remarkable how far co- Tosh has come in so little time. Well, Drew, what's really scary is, uh, at least on the defensive side of the football, you know, Tosh is the most tenured, you know, member of that defensive staff. You know, you've got yes, a, new, right. uh, a new defensive coach and coach, a D-line coach and coach Cool. You've got a new inside linebackers coach and Pete Golding and, you know, first-year coach back there with the DBs. And, you know, you know, one of the reasons he's the most tenured guy talking about Tosh is he spent, you know, a couple of years, you know, kind of in, uh, you know, coaching rehab um, as a analyst um, or a defensive assistant after, you know, getting dismissed from Washington for a uh, NCAA violation. Um you know, but it's, again, you know, I, I think Coach Cool is worth, you know, every dollar. He's the best defensive line coach in college football. You know, I think it's obvious, going back to what you just said, um, you know, that Pete Golding is being groomed to be, you know, the next defensive coordinator after Tosh gets a head coaching job. And, you know, I'm not going to name a, a salary, but, you know, th- this, is, this is where – and I want to, you know, kind of segue into talking about Jalen Hurts' career path after this. But, you know, I can remember it was maybe 11 or 12 years ago uh, going to the rat trap apartment that, that Jeremy Pruitt was living in when he was Rush Probst defensive coordinator at Hoover. I'm not going to name the the financial figure that Jeremy was making, but it was less than a hundred thousand dollars a year. But in in, in a ten year time span, you know that guy's gone from uh, making less than a hundred thousand dollars a year as the Hoover defensive coordinator to his first year at Alabama when he was an off field coach. I think he might have had the the title of director of player personnel. You know, making around a hundred and twenty five grand a year to now being worth $40 million. Um, you know, that, that's just what, how big of a business Nick Saban has turned college football into with what he pays his assistants. He certainly does, and uh, they've spent just under $6 million on this coaching staff uh, in, uh, in this revamped uh, uh, group, and uh, they all uh, received raises uh, from their previous uh, institutions. And that's the one thing. Uh, they, it is tough to work for Nick Saban. There is no doubt about it. But it's also, uh, you know, well-documented. He takes care of his assistant coaches. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, since we last spoke, uh, Jody Wright has left uh, the director of player personnel. He's gone back to UAB to be the assistant head coach and offensive line coach, run game coordinator under Bill Clark. So that position will have to be filled. It's just yet another move Nick Saban's going to have to make over this summer. Uh, William, I'm not sure that he's completely filled all those spots uh, that where he's lost uh, in the, those such as Wesley Neighbors, uh, and I know uh, and and he and I they, there's they, he's going to continue, I'm sure, to methodically replace guys. But it's been pretty amazing to watch, you know, how organized he is and that he always has a plan and that. Uh, he, he knows that these guys, most of the time, Dan Werner gone as well, uh, you know, and, and that they, they, they move up in the profession. And most of the time, uh, especially when you're considering these off-field roles, uh, they, Chris Winkie going to Tennessee, they're not going to stay long. But he always seems to have someone, such as Kevin Steele's son, whom he hired to replace William Vallejos, 
who uh, went to the Buffalo Bills with Brian Dable. Yeah, and, you know, I'm, I'm happy for Vallejos with, you know, with that role. I mean, he, he's been the, you know, kind of the, the second-team uh, O-line coach down there at Alabama, um, you know, since his eligibility ran out. And, you know, that's, you know, I would say, you know, I can't speak to the Kirby Smart side of things because um, I, I, I've never even shook Kirby Smart's hand. But I can tell you this, um, you know, from the Jeremy Pruitt side of things, that that's one thing that, that Jeremy learned early and often um, when he, you know, rose from being the, um, you know, the director of player personnel in 2007 to, you know, being the, the you know, kind of the, the B-team DBs coach under Nick Saban, because we all know who the DBs coach is. Um, you know, when he left and he went to Florida State, and then he left and, you know, when he went to Georgia, um, the, the, the one thing that he learned more than anything was, and I think this plays into, you know, Kirby being patient, you know, and not taking – you know, the Southern Miss head coaching job, not taking the old Miss coaching job. Um, you know, certainly Jeremy had to wait for a long time to get the head job up there at Tennessee. But what these guys learn is if you want to be successful as a head coach, um, you know, the guys that have worked under Nick Saban, both at LSU and at Alabama on the college level, that they see how much money that Nick's been able to um, garner for his football program. And, you know, you go to a place like Florida State that doesn't have the best facilities. You know, you go to a place like Georgia, um, you know, when Jeremy Pruitt got there and they had a, a, a 30 or a 45-yard indoor practice facility. And let's see, Jeremy got to Georgia in 2014. You know, Kirby Smart is fixing to do a dedication on their new indoor practice facility that's going to be the largest in college football, um, they're not going to take a job somewhere that doesn't have the financial backing um, from an athletic director, a president, or a, a booster network that won't put the money out there for them to be successful. They understand that the recruiting budget has to be ridiculous, and they understand that recruiting is an arms race with facilities. And, you know, that's kind of what you're seeing now. I mean, you know, you look over there, Drew, at the, uh, the SEC East, um, it, it's kind of like the, the minor leagues for Nick Saban football. You know, you've got Jeremy Pruitt um, at Tennessee. You've got Kirby Smart at Georgia. You've got Will Muschamp at South Carolina. You know, even – uh, Dan Mullen, you know, coming from a place at Mississippi State that kind of had a limited budget, you know, he's down there at Florida and he's paying, you know, uh, you know, the going rate for coaches on his coaching staff. Uh, so, you know, to me, what I think is so interesting is, you know, the SEC East has kind of turned into, you know, the Nick Saban minor league of college football. When you look at what, you know, Jeremy Pruitt's doing at Tennessee, Kirby Smart's doing at Georgia, and, and Will Muschamp. You know, all three of those guys have a lot of coaches, you know, whether they were on-the-field coaches like Mel Tucker, um, you know, graduate assistants at Alabama like Kevin Scherer is now, uh, the D.C. at Tennessee, um, or, you know, even a guy like Lance Thompson that's with Will Muschamp over in South Carolina. Huge Alabama and Nick Saban flavors. And, you know, they're trying to get, you know, their, their respective schools to kind of do the same thing. And, you know, it's easier said than done. It is. Uh, no question about it. Uh, that's one of the reasons that Nick Saban went to Alabama. They were going to give him every tool he needed to succeed. And they certainly have done that, no doubt about it. And, William, uh, now to kind of switch gears to recruiting, uh, some interesting news uh, coming out as far as along the defensive line. We had talked about this guy already, and he had moved his uh, decision to August, up to August. But as is always the case, uh, sometimes uh, that can change as well. It looks like May the 18th or around that date is the time that he will go public uh, at his school, and uh, they will have a press conference. But 
it looks like Antonio Alfano from Colonia, New Jersey. Alabama, the last couple of Jersey kids, pretty good football players. Good dude named Minka and then <laughs> and then a uh, dude named Avery. And uh, I think both of them are going to play a while in the NFL. But, uh, you know, uh, a- a- Antonio Alfano uh, visited Alabama during spring practice, had a bang-out visit. Uh, you know, Josh Gaddis deserves a ton of credit with this because he'd been recruiting him for Penn State. He basically, once he left that visit, uh, cut it to three, Alabama, Georgia, Penn State. Alabama and Penn State seem to be the favorites with the tide, with the edge. 6'4", 275 pounds, but a true freak, a guy that's a five-star uh, defensive lineman. Uh, and, you know, I know that they, there were some things they wanted Alfano to uh, get uh, in order off the field. And the best way for me to put this is from what I've been told, uh, you know, it's kind of the family business. And I will quote something I think it's around 1990 when you were at Alabama and you guys saw this as a movie uh, before uh, a Friday before a game uh, during your football season, but good fellas. And that's all I'll say about it. One of the great movies of all time. And that's kind of the family business with the Alfanos. And that's all I'll say about it. But he looks like he's going to choose Alabama, which would be a big piece of the puzzle for the Tide. Well, let me tell you this, Drew, and uh, I think you have uh, probably in the last 10 years sent me enough film and asked my opinion on a, you know, a particular prospect to respect this and understand where I'm coming from. Um, he is easily the best defensive line prospect in the country this year, uh, the best guy that I've seen on film. Um, When when you look at, uh, you know, at his measurables, what he's done at combines, you know, run a 4740, jump through the roof, uh, which I really don't care about at the end of the day. I'm I'm more concerned about game film. Um, But he is easily the best defensive lineman in the country that I've seen on tape. Um, The guy that I would compare him to um, that, that will, you know, kind of endear Alabama fans more than anything is Jonathan Allen. Um, this guy, nobody has this guy rated a five-star prospect right now, but he's the closest thing to. You forget about you know Ishmael Sosfer down in Louisiana. Uh, forget about you know Thibodeau out there in California. Uh, the the you know uh, the Tagliavoa's cousin at Hawaii. This guy ships on all of them. Um, easily. You know, because it gets depressing to me, Drew, to kind of, you know, recognize this for somebody that's a rising senior in high school. Um, If he keeps his nose clean, a top 10 draft pick three years from now, that's how good this kid is. Um, uh, You know, another part of his recruitment that you touched on um, with, with Josh Gaddis. And, you know, I think this guy is rapidly becoming. Uh, a contemporary of Tosh LePoise on the coaching staff as a recruiter. Um, you know, Josh Gaddis's relationship with him is going to end up being the, the, you know, nail in the coffin when he commits in, on the 18th to Alabama. And, you know, when you go to the Penn State boards and you read about that, you know, they, they want to talk about, you know, the fact that maybe James Franklin cooled on him a little bit because he get he got kicked out of a couple of high schools, and uh, the, the the funniest comment that I saw from a Penn State fan was, um, you know, if you're pissed off about Alabama getting Alfano, you know, and, and and you know, courtesy of Josh Gaddis, which you know the Penn State fan base was really upset, you know, that they lost Gaddis to Alabama. They understand why they lost him, um, and he's another guy that I would put into you know, that Tosh LaPoy status that's probably going to end up being a head coach in the next two or three years. Um, I saw one Penn State fan say, well, how pissed off are you going to be next year when he gets Julian Fleming, who's the number one wide receiver in the country for for 2019? Uh, It would be a major piece of the puzzle. And and this seems to have maybe some Coach Craig Kuliakowski uh, written all over it because he's very familiar Uh, with the uh, Kansas City area. But it's interesting, in recent days, Alabama has offered, and I watched this kid's film, and, uh, you know, good friend Rodney Orr, who we both have known for years, 
is really impressed with it. I was impressed when I watched it. He's only listed as a three star, and I and I and I say this because this is Coach Cool's uh, mo finding these kids. But he's listed at 6'4", 258 pounds. Uh, he's from Kansas City, Park Hill South High School. Etanosa Rubin is his name. And he and, and, and the Rodney Orr hearkened a name that I had not thought about in a long time. That I don't know that you crossed paths with him, William. He may have left the program right before you got there. Uh, but he was a rising star at Alabama until he ran into some issues and transferred to Arizona, became a first-round draft choice, and played many years with the Oakland Raiders. And Anthony L- Smith. Raiders. Yes, exactly. Anthony Smith. He's been compared to Smith, who was no doubt a uh, big-time talent. Well, you know, um, you know, Drew, I can, I can kind of provide some, some insight into that St. Louis area, and specifically the East St. Louis area, uh, with a guy that, that I played with and, and was a very highly recruited guy, you know, back in the early nineties. Um, you know, I, I can't remember what his NFL trajectory was. I don't think he lasted long if he lasted at all, but we had a guy on, on my team named James Gregory that was, you know, the, the designated nose guard on that, that D line, you know, the 92. Yes. Exactly. Eric, yeah. Eric Curry, John Copeland, Jeremy Nunley, you know, James, we called him Big G. And, uh, you know, he was from East St. Louis. And uh, I can remember, you know, packing my bag up to go home for Thanksgiving one year. And, you know, I noticed that Big G was kind of, you know, lagging around in the dorm. And I said, hey, man, are you not going home for Thanksgiving? He goes, no, no. If I, if I got home, I'll probably get shot. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, I'm staying here. And I was like, you know, dog, if you want to come with me to Birmingham, you're welcome to have, you know, Thanksgiving dinner with me. And he goes, no, I'm fine. I'm, I'm just going to stay here in the dorm. And, you know, I don't have to worry about bullet holes coming through these concrete walls. Um, so, you know, that's how bad that, that section of St. Louis is. Um, and I think, you know, Drew, I, I've, I've said this, you know, publicly in another, um, you know, domain, um, there's a lot of really good football players, you know, in in that St. Louis metro area. And, you know, the thing that really strikes me about Coach Cool is whether he was at, you know, Missouri, you know, Columbia, Missouri is, is where the school is, and it's a rural area. Um, you know, then he was at, you know, Miami um, with, with Mark Rick. It's the perfect storm for him and Alabama. You've got the best defensive line coach in college football that has a, you know, for the first time in his career, um, you know, has the best brand in college football with the best head coach in college football. And I think between, you know, Coach Cool and Josh Gaddis and Tosh Papoy and Nick Saban, they're gonna they're gonna sign a monster defensive line class this year, and it will be headlined by Antonio Alfano, who, in my opinion, is the best. You know, three technique defensive tackle, five technique defensive end in the country. The kid is amazing. It, no question, he uh, he's a big time prospect, and it would be a big get for the University of Alabama, uh, and uh, he does commit on May the 18th, no doubt about that. Uh, and uh, we, we, But then now to switch gears a little bit, uh, we've, you know, we've kind of uh, taken a look back at spring practice, but over the last few minutes of the show, I wanted to just kind of get your overview. Uh, before that, though, we wanted to talk about the two transfers, and this is not surprising because there's, we used to talk about what Mario Cristobal was doing before he left Alabama was stacking, you know, the, the talent uh, like Cordwood along that offensive line and that there would eventually be attrition. Uh, we saw Dallas Warmack leave, uh, who uh, he's now transferred. Looks like he will reunite, most likely with uh, Mario Cristobal at Oregon. He's got two years of eligibility left, the younger brother of Chance Warmack. And now, uh, you know, uh, Brandon Kennedy, uh, the, uh, who's going to be a redshirt junior from Wetumpka, Alabama, he uh, he's going to leave as well. He had a leg injury last year. 
you know, uh, they moved uh, uh, Ross Piercebaker over to center in front of him in the spring, so he did not win a starting job. He is going to transfer. He, there's been a little bit of whispers about Tennessee, but we do not know a landing spot for him yet. But just your thoughts overall on these two departures. You know, Richie Richie Pettibon could be next, and then you know we're, we're the we've talked about the O line a little bit, but we know that there's still going to be questions about right tackle. Matt Womack's got to get healthy, and then what they're going to do at left guard. Is it going to be Josh Casher? Is it going to be Lester Cotton? But your thoughts on the departures, and then uh, how does it affect this offensive line? Well, you know, I think this is something that should be expected. You know, when you, you know, kind of oversign, in my opinion, um, you know, to to three positions, um, you know, center, left guard, right guard. Um, you know, on, on, on Dallas Warmack, I mean uh, – you know, let's be honest, you know, he, he was never going to be his brother. Um, he's a very good player. I think he could start for a lot of, you know, D1 schools. Um, but, you know, he, he made the decision to come into a place that, you know, it's a priority for Nick Saban. I mean, I think that's one of the things that, you know, make, makes Nick Saban the best in the business is he realizes that not just in the SEC conference, but you know, in, in, in the, uh, you know, the playoff mentality, um, if you can win the line of scrimmage on both sides of the football, you're not going to lose a lot of football games. Um, you know, hell, uh, you know, truth be told, uh, the last two years, Alabama's gotten to the national championship game um, because they were better than everybody else at the line of scrimmage and they had a quarterback that couldn't throw the football. And by the way, uh, this is coming from, the biggest Jalen Hurts nut hugger in, in, in the in the country, um, but you know I, I think you'll see more attrition there, Drew. I think the guy's name that you mentioned um, when you asked me the question is certainly a, a potential candidate to um, you know fly the coop over the summer. I um, mean Richie Pettibone, you know that guy was you know basically Ross Pierce Baker. Uh, you know, coming out of high school three or four years ago. He could have gone anywhere in the country he wanted to. Um, you know, the, the Brandon Kennedy transfer, um, you know, I think is a little bit more intricate. I mean, he's a guy that's um, a very cerebral guy. I mean, he had good enough grades to, you know, get a get a scholarship offer from Vanderbilt. Um, to me, I think that's probably – of, of the current losses, the, the biggest one, because, you know, he probably was the, you know, the second team guy behind Pierce Baker at center. Um, but I think you bring up great points with, you know, Warmack being gone, Kennedy being gone, and, and you know, that the, the name that you mentioned, um, Pettibone, you know, to me makes the most logical sense that might be, you know, the next guy that decides to leave because, you know, he was so highly recruited. Um, you, you know, he, it took him a little bit to factor in. But, you know, when, when you look at things from that, you know, the, the best five guys, Drew, um, you know, is he going to beat out Lester Cotton? Is he going to beat out Ross Pierce Baker at center? Uh, is he going to beat out Jed Wills at right guard? You know, let's, let's just be honest here. Um, Jedrick Wills is going to be the starting right guard, and Matt Womack is going to be the starting right tackle um, after what's happened with Alex Leatherwood in spring practice, unless something drastically changes. But I think you've you know kind of hit it out of the park as to who might be the next guy logically that transfers out, and I would agree with you. It, it might be Richie Pettibone. Yeah, and then uh, defensively, we've really already taken a look at the offense uh, in spring practice ad nauseum and talked about all the weapons and what they've got to do. But I thought defensively, considering how much they've lost and that staggering stat that the entire 2016 starting 11 has now been drafted in the last two NFL drafts, uh, you know, but considering all that and all those losses and then the injuries they incurred at linebacker, uh, Keith Holcomb playing baseball full time. I thought defensively, uh, they they the front seven looked really good coming out of spring practice. 
certainly I know Nick Saban wants to develop some more depth at the D-line, but when you think about the first, uh, you know, four or five guys, uh, when you've got Isaiah Bugs, Raquan Davis, who continues to get better, uh, Quinnen Williams, who we expect to break out, LeBron Ray, uh, who's looked really good. I thought Johnny Dwight had moments, uh, William, but right now it looks like the defensive line under Coach Cool has got a chance to still be very stout. And then the linebacker core, Dylan Moses, Mac Wilson, uh, and then the outside backers, Terrell Lewis. We didn't see Anthony Jennings this spring, but we know what he can do. Uh, and then you've got an experienced guy like Christian Miller. And then what we're seeing out of Chris Allen, this front seven's got a chance to be really good, I think. I'm going to give you two more names. Um, I think you need to pay attention to Markel Benton and somebody else, Drew, um, that, that really, you know, flashed to me. And I still think he's probably a year away from, from maybe factoring in on, on the, the rotation. But, I, you know, the, the one scrimmage that I had to see in person, um, there was a, one guy that really flashed to me that I wasn't expecting to flash um, was Jerez Parks. And so, you know, they, they've got a lot of depth there at outside linebacker. I think, you know, the if you want to look for, you know, a weakness on this 2018 Alabama team, it's certainly at inside linebacker. Um, but, you know, when you, when you talk about, you know, what's coming here in the next three weeks with, you know, Patrick Sertain, Eddie Smith, you know, Josh Job, Jalen Armour Davis at DBs, that's going to get replenished. Um, I, like you, I think Coach Cool's got a pretty good hand on the D-line. Um, and, you know, now that I know how the, the Alabama staff feels about uh, the inside linebacker, Jalen Moody, and also the, you know, junior college transfer, uh, and I think his name is like Matuka or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Tavita Masaika. You know, Tavita Masaika. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're real high on him too. Um, you know, I'll say this. Uh, you know, I think it's the best comment that's been given to me um, by somebody on the coaching staff that knows um, that I don't buy you know game day tickets. I don't go to games. I don't go. I certainly don't pay those outlandish prices for you know playoff games in Atlanta or New Orleans, but. You know, I was told um, by a coach on the Alabama staff, go ahead and buy your playoff tickets because that's where we're going to be. No question about it. And then special teams-wise, how encouraged are we, uh, you know, for uh, Joseph uh, Bulavas? Uh, he had two of the three good scrimmages. I think he struggled a little bit in the indoor one, but, again, that, that was special circumstances. That was a – a whacked out day uh, from a from just a uh, uh, from a weather standpoint. Uh, in the two inside, Bryant Denny he kicked very well uh, and uh, made a high percentage of his kicks. Showed good leg strength, uh, from what we understand. Uh, you know the punting situation is still kind of a work in progress with Skylar DeLong, uh, and then uh, we we uh, we truly believe that Jalen Waddle uh, has a chance to be the punt returner. And they've got a myriad of guys, Henry Ruggs included. Uh, Xavion Marks, they should be able to find kickoff returners. But overall, your thoughts on where special teams stands? We know Austin Jones will be uh, there shortly, the graduate transfer from Temple at place kicker to compete uh, with Belovis. But uh, where uh, are where as far as where, where do you think the special teams stand right now? Uh, you know, with the guy that I spoke to on Alabama staff, you know. I was given, you know, the, the name that, you know, Trevon Diggs was the most improved player on the team. I, I would argue a little bit with him that it wasn't Belovis. Um, I thought he really has progressed from, you know, the scrimmages last August based on what I saw this spring. Um, I'm not saying I thought he should be the most improved player on the team, but he got better. Um, you know, I think if Alabama fans are looking for, you know, J.K. Scott 2.0, um, they're probably not going to see it from the punter. 
But I will say this, that guy does have a knack of pointing the tip of the football down and pinning people deep inside the 20. Um, so, you know, and again, we still haven't seen the Jeff Banks influence on the special teams. And I think that's going to be a, a pretty deep impact. Um, you know, that's what Nick Saban hired him for. Um, you know, and I do think he's, you know, he's probably not at the Tosh LePoy, Josh Gaddis, um, you know, maybe Brent Key level as a recruiter. But I do think he is um, better than what people are thinking he is at getting recruits. Um, you know, we'll see, you know, give him a cycle, you know, to go out to Texas and California and do what he's got to do. Um, but, you know, Drew, again, it's Alabama football, you know, at the forefront of, of college football. And, you know, you have to do a radio show every day and have to, you know, deal with this kind of stuff. But to me, I think it would be really – because I've been there before. I can remember, you know, being, you know, at, at the damn uh, – uh, you know, ward of, you know, Tommy Tuberville putting his thumb and fingers up in the air. But to me, it would be really depressing to me if I was a college football fan that wasn't a fan of Alabama football that to sit here at, what, second week of May and, and not have to realize that not only is Alabama – going to have the, the number one team in the country is, this year. But, oh, look again, they're going to have the number one recruiting class again in college football. They've got both. Yes, they do, and there's no doubt about it. And I think Jeff Banks' best work and biggest impact may be this summer working uh, uh, with uh, Joseph Bullivis, uh also uh, Austin Jones, and the kicker, Skyler DeLong. He's renowned as the best in the country, and uh, he'll get a chance to work with a lot of these guys, uh, and uh, and you know, and, and make adjustments, and they'll be watching film as well, and uh, and and, and I, I'm anxious to see how much they can improve going into fall camp, uh, and because of again, Skylar DeLong was an early enrollee, and again, uh, both of us is a redshirt freshman, so still young guys, and then of course, uh, just in a in a few short days, well, uh, the great Jalen Waddle, and I I keep using that term, but. You've everyone seen on Twitter what he's been doing on a basketball court, just some of the freakish things. Can't wait to see him on the field uh, for the University hey, of Alabama. Yes, sir. Um, let's, let's go ahead and cut to the chase. <laughs> let's talk about what Nick Saban labeled Jalen Waddle. Oh, yeah. Yep. The most explosive player in the country. Oh, yeah. There's When, when you're compared – to Amari Cooper and your old teammate David Palmer in the same sentence, uh, that's saying something. And, uh, you know, because yep. David is still in pound for pound uh, one of the best football players, if not the best, I've ever seen at Alabama. And especially with the, when you consider – the only thing David didn't have are two things. He wasn't 6'2", and he didn't have 4 or 5 speed, but he had everything else. Uh, and, uh, you know, yep. and it was just a unique talent. And then we know what Amari Cooper did, and we know what Julio Jones has done. Uh, but, again, uh, we, we, we're going to be wrapping up this edition of BAMS Radio. Uh, we want to thank William Redfish Barger and Thomas Watts, the Wizard Behind the Curtain, for joining us tonight. This will be our last show until uh, early June uh, because there's really not a whole lot going on right now with the, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, the May evaluation period. Now, if there's something that breaks, certainly uh, you may hear from us. Uh, but we're going to wait until the summer camps start you know, flowing at Alabama because, as everyone knows, the calendar has changed because of this new – uh, recruiting cycle in the early signing period. Now Alabama, all their camps in June, nothing in July. July is basically a dead period. So, you know, the show will go back to a weekly format in August when fall practice starts. But we will keep you updated via Twitter. Thomas will do that. He does an outstanding job. But you will still hear from us throughout the spring and summer, but it will not be as often. Uh, but we hope ever we really appreciate the listens. I know we've been getting thousands per week. And we really appreciate our listeners and all the people that have supported us. We want to continue to expand and improve this product. But we want to thank Thomas Watts. want to thank William Redfish Barger. I'm your host, Drudy Armin. Everybody have a great rest of your week and, of course, the rest of this month. And uh, we'll have our fingers and toes crossed. We're expecting Antonio Alfano. 
he will have people sleeping with the fishes and will hopefully be a member of the Alabama Crimson Tide coming up, uh, you know, on May the 18th. And they'll continue to add pieces to the puzzle this summer in recruiting. But everybody, we enjoyed it. Uh, we, and if we looked back at spring practice the last few weeks. Uh, we've talked recruiting. We've talked to the coaching staff. But we look forward to Nick Saban's 12th season. They'll be number one in the country. And as William said, going to be tough to stop them from being a runaway train, number one recruiting class. And Kirby Smart can like that. But again, uh, we, uh, we want to thank everybody for joining us on this edition of BAMS Radio. And uh, I'm your host, Drew Armand, for my two compatriots. Good night and roll tide.